So Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill, called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come, come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave you one leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So let's let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for um, your kindness in uh, recording your word for us that uh, we might read it and. Uh, think about it and uh, allow by your spirit for it to change our minds and our hearts. And so we pray, Father God, that as we do so today, that we would be people who would have the, the uh, conviction and the passion and the purpose of Jesus in our lives. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So in a couple of months from now, we'll have a team of university students who will be coming to Port Macquarie to help us to share the gospel with uh, people in our town. And uh, some years back, I remember we had a similar mission where some team members during the kind of feedback time after they'd gone doing some door knocking and so on, uh, told me about a conversation that they had with a uh, particularly friendly man. And in the conversation, they'd introduced themselves and they're from the Prezi Church and so on. And they asked him what he thought about Jesus. And he said, well, I haven't uh, done much thinking about Jesus at all. In fact, he said, I don't even want to talk about Jesus. Now, that's, uh, that's very sad, isn't it, uh, for someone to have that uh, response? It's profoundly sad, but that was his call. Our uh, friends from Sydney didn't push the matter with him any further. But uh, it was what he said next that was very, very telling. Uh, he said to them, look, um, I... I don't want to talk about Jesus, but don't worry about me. I'm okay. I'm Presbyterian. <laughs> but it was what he said next. He said, and 
I've written out my will and I've left some money for your church in the will. I suspect he's still alive. That was a few years back and the treasurer, Andrew, hasn't reported anything that's been received in the mail um, and uh, I'm glad that uh, we haven't received money from that gentleman. Um, but when we drill down into his comments, it helps us to sort of think about uh, and get down to the very heart of uh, the nature of sin. I'm not sure whether or not or to what extent your typical Aussie these days even thinks in the category of something being uh, of sin. Uh, but uh, if they did, I'm, I'd hazard a guess and say that if people were to think about what sin is, that they would be thinking about particular things which we do which are not very nice, like stealing, like murder, like um, <clears throat> drunkenness and so on. But it's behaviour which people believe can be cancelled out uh, if it's uh, accompanied by uh, equally good behaviour, things that we do to make up for the things which, the bad things that we've done, uh, good things like, for example, giving money to your church, uh, to the church in your will. But the conversation with this man actually helps us to, to dig down a bit further than that because it... Uh, it helps us to define what sin actually is because by not wanting to think about Jesus, by not even wanting to talk about Jesus, what was he doing? With the, he was rejecting Jesus, wasn't he? Now, it wasn't a particularly angry or aggressive, you know, shaking the fist at God kind of rejection of Jesus. It's more of a, a polite, a passive um, even apathetic uh, view towards Jesus, but the effect is the same. It's still rejection of Jesus. He did not want to be unsettled. He didn't want Jesus to be unsettling his mind or unsettling his life, uh, let alone being ruled by Jesus. Now, of course, there's nothing new in this. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, as we've journeyed through it, we've seen a whole range of reactions of people towards the person and the works of Jesus. And uh, those, that range of reactions, like, for example, last week the, um, with uh, Zacchaeus, uh, with the man that was, was blind, was the, these were reactions of sheer joy, weren't they, uh, at Jesus. Uh, we've also seen uh, reactions of um, suspicion towards Jesus, like people who just didn't want him to be in their territory after he'd driven out some demons and went into some pigs. And we've seen outright hostility towards Jesus as people have began to conspire as to how they would uh, get rid of Jesus. But we've not seen anything quite the same as what we encounter in Luke chapter 19. As Jesus now enters into the city of Jerusalem... Now, just to set the context of this geographically, <clears throat> we saw last week that Jesus had been in Jericho, and Jericho was about 20 k's south of Jerusalem. Uh, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem um, passes over what was called the, uh, the Mount of Olives. It's still there, it's a hill just outside of Jerusalem. I don't think that there's any olives on it anymore, but they say that you can see that it's actually quite a, a good place for growing stuff. 
And on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives, uh, there was a village called Bethany. Um, these days, it goes by its Arabic name, and it's the. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a go at pronouncing the Arabic name here, and I'm going to get it completely wrong. But anyway, um, anyone here speak Arabic? Oh dear, someone does. <laughs> <laughs> There's one in every crowd, isn't there? <laughs> Thanks, brother. Um, our brother from Egypt, is that right? Uh, welcome. Lovely to have you with us today. Uh, I'm, I'm going uh, to put my neck on the line here and say El Azarije. Is that anything close? All right. <laughs> well, it comes from the, um, it comes from the, the Arabic meaning Lazarus. Now, why do you think that's the case? Well, where do you think, who do you think used to live there? It was Lazarus uh, with his sisters, Martha and Mary. And nearby, there was another village, which is named uh, Bethphage. Now, uh, when Jesus and his followers were walking towards these two villages, Jesus gave some unusual instructions, which we read about in verse 29. Uh, in verse 29, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Now, we know from Matthew's gospel, uh, from Matthew's account of this incident in his gospel, that it was a cult of a donkey, not a cult of a horse. So it's a young male donkey. And understandably, uh, the owners of this young male donkey were going to be a bit curious when they saw these two men apparently helping themselves to the donkey. And... Uh, so Jesus said to them, and, and that's what happened in the next couple of verses, uh, when someone asks you why you're untying it, you should say to them, because the Lord needs it. And they said that, and apparently it satisfied the owners. Now, why would it satisfy them? Well, obviously, Jesus uh, knew that the donkey would be there. He'd spent some time in Bethany with uh, his friends Martha and Mary and Lazarus. My guess is that the owners were people who knew of Jesus and were grateful uh, to Jesus because of the very fact that this is the village of Lazarus. And what did Jesus do for Lazarus? He raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, the whole village would have known about this. Everyone would have uh, honoured uh, Jesus. And so my take on it is that um, the owners have said, look, if if, the, if Jesus needs our donkey, that's fine by us. Right? Now, the question, though, is why did he want to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey? One of the great mysteries, or one of the mysterious aspects of Jesus' ministry thus far has been uh, the identification of, as to who Jesus is. Because when people, or even when the demons have figured out uh, the identity of Jesus, um, what, did, what has Jesus instructed them to do? Has he told them, well, go and tell everybody who I am? 
he hasn't, has he? He said, uh, be quiet about this. Uh, keep this information to yourself. In fact, do you remember when, uh, early on in Luke's Gospel, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do the crowd say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist and others think that you're Elijah and there's some others think that you're one of the other prophets that's come back. And Jesus looks at them and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And at that moment, Jesus said to his disciples, do not tell anyone about this. He warned them strictly not to tell others that he was the Christ of God. Now, Jesus knew that when people realised that he was the Christ, that that would be the catalyst for the chain of events which would lead to his death and the time for that had not yet come. Now, uh, what's all of this got to do with the donkey, you might ask? Well, the answer to that question is found very deep in the Old Testament. And I wonder if you can turn with me to the prophet Zechariah. Now, I'm going to tell you what page number that's on. It's page number 672. That's a whole lot easier than having to find Zechariah in a split second, isn't it? Page 672. And uh, Zechariah, in chapter 9, he speaks of a, an event which to him, at his point in history, was something in the future. And this is what he says in uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Who is it who rides on the back of the donkey? It is the, the king. What city does he come to? He comes to the city of Jerusalem. What message will he proclaim? A message of peace. That's why he comes on a donkey, not on a war horse. And friends, how far will his kingdom extend? From the river to the ends of the earth. His kingdom will extend to the ends of the earth. This is the messianic prophecy this is the prophet uh, the the theme which uh, the promise of god which is threaded through the old testament uh, of god's king ruling over god's kingdom a kingdom that would not be bound by uh, the geography of israel but would extend throughout all of the world and it is this hope this is the messianic hope uh, of israel now back to uh, Luke chapter 19, because time-wise, uh, Luke chapter 19 is set just before the Passover. And at Passover time, many thousands of Jews would be streaming in from all over the land and uh, proselytes, uh, converts to Judaism from other places as well, 
would be pouring into the city of Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover, where God's people remembered that God is a saving God, that he saved them out of slavery in Egypt, and they remember that by the shedding of the blood of the Lamb and the salvation that God brought to his people. And in this context, what does Jesus do? He declares his hand. For three years he has hidden his identity, but now the time has come. Why did he acquire the donkey? Well, Matthew in his gospel says this took place to fulfill what was said by the prophet, and then he quotes Zechariah. The time had come. This is a bold public declaration and it's done so in the city of, of David. Jesus is saying by, by being mounted on the back of the donkey, by riding into Jerusalem, he's saying, I am God's promised king. I am the Christ. I am about to establish my kingdom and I will rule the world and I will bring peace. Now, um, <clears throat> when I was a little kid in Sunday school, on the Sunday before Good Friday, um, the Sunday school teachers would dress us up in Middle Eastern looking clothes and they would bring all these palm branches and palm leaves to church and someone would pretend to be a donkey and we'd... <coughs> Lots of fun, but in our sentimentality, we can actually miss the point of what's, what's really going on here. Uh, because in verses 35 to 41, we see various reactions and raw emotions on display from, from the crowds, from the Pharisees, and from Jesus himself. Firstly, the crowds. Uh, the crowd of disciples... Uh, they clearly understood the significance of the donkey and their sense of expectation was really building. And, and that's why in verse 35 they spread their cloaks on the ground. Uh, in biblical times that was something that you did uh, for a king. It's like rolling out the red carpet. They'd waited a long time for Jesus to declare his hand and to publicly proclaim himself as Messiah and now he's done it. Uh, it's the other gospels that tell us about the, um, the branches and the palm leaves uh, that people spread those out along with the cloaks in order to pave the way for the king. And then in verse 37 as they began the descent uh, from the Mount of Olives into Jeru towards Jerusalem, these followers of Jesus, so this is not the welcoming party come out from Jerusalem to greet him, these are his followers. The welcoming, the, 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 his followers, in great anticipation, they erupted into joyful praise of God. Blessed is the king, they say, who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 118, another one of the messianic promises. And they got it right, didn't they? Sort of. 
Pharisees were not quite so enthusiastic. Verse 39, Teacher, they said, rebuke your disciples. They were incensed. They were incensed that Jesus should, should be accepting this acclamation as being the king. And moreover, it's also possible that they feared the Roman reaction because this was starting to look like an uprising. This was starting to look like the declaration of an alternate king to Caesar. And they would have known that the Romans would not tolerate that and that they would uh, uh, react with brute force to squash this rebellion. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus would have nothing of it. For three years he'd been telling people to keep quiet. But now... Uh, he's saying that nothing can bottle up this good news. If the disciples don't sing his praises, then guess what? Pointing to some rocks, he says, the stones, inanimate objects, they'll sing my praises. Uh, this is the time for the trees of the field to clap their hands, for the, uh, for the mountains and the hills to burst forth in song, for all of creation to erupt declaring that Jesus is king and for the confrontation to now begin. Yet it is not with bravado that Jesus triggers the chain of events which would now occur. The disciples were praising, the Pharisees were rejecting, but in verses 41 and 42, what is Jesus doing? He is weeping. Let's have a look at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept. He wept over it and said, Even you, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept. And we're not just talking about a few teardrops rolling down his cheek at this point. The word that's used there is the word for wailing. This is, this is, the, this is the, the grief, the expression of grief that comes from your gut. This, Jesus is bawling his eyes. He's, this is very, very deep grief. But why, you might ask? I mean, it's all according to plan, isn't it? Um, Jesus knew that he had to be rejected and killed as the Passover lamb. Uh, he knew that uh, he would be raised from the grave and that uh, through that that God's kingdom would be established. He knew that the, the sin of rejecting him would be in God's sovereignty used by God to bring about God's ultimate good. And so you think, well, why is he grieving over that? Friends, this is no sterile clinical function which Jesus is about to do. What we see here in verses 41 and 42 is that the, the dreadful tension which is in the heart of our Saviour, that uh, terrible predicament of wanting to do the Father's will, 
yet a profound revulsion and a sadness towards the sin which would be necessary, which would be used by God uh, to bring about his will. And more than that, Jesus grieves and weeps about the judgment which would follow. Verse 43. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Um, this is a prophecy about Jerusalem. Do you know, I've, I've never been to Rome, but I understand that in Rome that there stands a building which is called the Arch of Titus. Has anyone seen it? No one's seen it. The Arch of Titus. Uh, it was built in the first century uh, to celebrate a great Roman victory over their foe, the Jews. Uh, in 66 AD, the Jews achieved what they were anticipating wrongly that Jesus would do, and that is that they rebelled and they drove out the Roman garrison. They drove out the Romans. The army of the Roman general, Titus, who later became emperor, then laid siege to Jerusalem. And when you lay siege, you, uh, you build up your embankment and you dig your you know, you set everything up and you make it so that no one can get in, no one can get out. And what does that cause in a city like Jerusalem? Well, there goes your food supply, your water supply. Um, people would start eventually eating each other to stay alive and that's what they did they cut off the supplies and in 70 AD they broke through they destroyed the buildings including they destroyed the temple and they killed hundreds of thousands of people the uh, first century historian Flavius Josephus recorded that the savagery the slaughter the disease and the starvation was monstrous now, friends, why did God allow this catastrophe to happen? Well, we see it in verse 44. Jesus, predicting this catastrophe, says, It is because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. If they had, in verse 42, they would have known what would bring them peace. Uh, friends, Jesus had foreknowledge um, sometimes you'd have to think that having foreknowledge of things wouldn't be a great advantage. Jesus had foreknowledge of what would happen and it broke him. It broke him to tears of anguish because God takes no pleasure in judgment. But this destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus prophesies here and which occurred in 70 AD like all of the judgments that we see in the Old Testament, was a warning. It's a warning that we can't go through life rejecting Jesus. It's a warning that one day we will all face uh, the, the judgment day of God. 
Um, Paul says in Acts 17 that God has appointed a certain day when he will judge all men. And he will do so by the one he's appointed. We're talking here about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is because of judgment that this is the very reason why Jesus must now complete his journey. A journey which would end on a cross outside the city as the true Passover lamb. The one who's by his blood bears the penalty for all our sin that we might be forgiven. I don't know how much we, you think about the future of those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We reflect on what God has done for us, that he has saved us from the coming wrath. But do we reflect on the reality that that's the future for all who do not know Jesus? It should cause us to grieve. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul lamented that he had great anguish and unceasing sorrow in his heart for his countrymen, his fellow Jews who reject Christ. In fact, he goes on to say something which it's almost unthinkable. He says, I'd be willing to trade places if that would mean their salvation. Many Australians are simply apathetic towards God and towards Jesus. We're happy to have in the back of our minds that he exists. We're happy to celebrate events like Christmas and Easter. But we don't really want Jesus to be king, the ruler over our lives. And so many people live their lives without any fear of judgment that is to come. And therefore, no thinking about what the Lord Jesus has already done for them. And it's because of this that we as Christians must grieve for the lost and we must tell people about Jesus that He saves us from the coming wrath. In 1959, Billy Graham came to Australia in order to preach the gospel. Now, Ray Dunlop, who was uh, sang in the choir at um, the 59 Billy Graham crusade, uh, says to me that uh, he heard at the time that as Billy Graham uh, flew into the city of Sydney and looked down, that he wept as he considered the eternal future of those who reject Christ. Now we might think, well, who knows if he wept or not. Um, Is that just a story? Well, he wouldn't have been alone because in 1959 and 1958, before then, many, many thousands of Christians from all over Australia, were gathering together in their churches and they were praying earnestly and my guess is weeping uh, for God in his mercy to uh, save people from hell through the gospel of Jesus. 
In those days, of course, they tell me that, you know, there's huge numbers of people who just went to church every Sunday, a lot of the time out of tradition and culture. So there are many, many more people going to church in those days than now. But those who were around at the time say to me, yeah, but actual genuine faith in Jesus might have been a different matter. But uh, <clears throat> listen to some of the statistics. Over 25 meetings in 1959, 719,000 Australians heard the gospel at one of the meetings. At one meeting in particular, and you can check this on the records for the Melbourne Cricket Ground, just you know, type in highest attendance ever at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, 143,000 souls. Beats any test match or one day cricket. 143,000 souls gathered together and hearing the gospel. But eclipsed by Sydney. Uh, a meeting in Sydney, 150,000 people overflowing from the Sydney cricket ground into the showground. I read somewhere that it was at that time the largest ever gathering of largest ever Christian gathering anywhere in the world any time. Happened in Sydney. And they heard the gospel. Uh, that's what Billy Graham preached. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that. Well, some of you may not have to imagine it. Was anyone there? One, two, three, four. Okay, anyone hear it? Anyone see it or listen to it on landline in a country town? A few more. Yep, okay. Imagine that. Uh, thousands of people who truly did trust Jesus for the first time as their saviour. Many would say, well, I was a churchgoer before that, but it then became absolutely real to me what Christ had done for me. Others would say, well, it was the first time I'd ever heard anything about Jesus. And we know that. We know that there were genuine conversions because 57 years later, many people are still alive and people who would say that they became Christians at, on that occasion and have spent their lives helping other people to know Jesus Christ as King. As King. And so the question is, do we still weep? Do we still weep for the lost? Do we still weep for our city, for our nation, for our people, for our world? For if we understand the judgment that awaits, then like Paul and like Jesus, we'll not only weep, but we'll do something about it to tell others of the sorrowful king our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the passion of Jesus. 
for his conviction to do your will for the salvation of many people. Father, we pray for ourselves. We pray that we would have such an understanding of the future of those who do not know Christ and such an understanding of what Christ has done on the cross that we would be amongst those who commit our lives to helping to rescue others from the coming wrath. Uh, help us, Lord God, to put aside petty ambitions and devote ourselves more fully uh, to proclaiming Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.